Second part of our time together this morning. I, I just can't imagine you would want to come out on a Saturday to do this. You know, there's so many other things to do around home. Chores and, you know, the honeydew list and, and that. But uh, thank you for coming. Appreciate it. Uh, and uh, I'm joined with uh, our newest staff member. Uh, Ella Gentile. Now, Ella is better known to you than I am, um, as uh, she lived in Florida, and she and her husband have been here, knows, uh, and you know uh, her. She now lives in uh, California, but uh, we work together, thanks to the marvel of the Internet and uh, the uh, technology that we have today. We don't all have to be in the same place at the same time. So uh, we welcome Ella to this uh, seminar as well. She's going to deal with some of the legal uh, work, framework, that you need to know about. And I will also deal with some of that, but uh, the plan giving and some of the uh, other issues that we need to attend to. Uh, you'll see that I have a little acronym at the end of the uh, pages. And by the way, um, you should all have a black packet, and uh, in it is this uh, wad of white uh, sheets. These uh, are the slides, so you don't need to write anything down except you might have, uh, uh, and we'll have time for that uh, a little later on. But uh, we want to thank um, uh, the chapel here. Thanks to Dave uh, Bosworth in particular and his family for uh, uh, graciously working on this, uh, organizing it. Uh, thank you, Dave, and thank you again, uh, all of you, for coming. The uh, leaving... Uh, a legacy of Christian stewardship. Let me just say, Ella's passing out a, 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 a list there, an attendance register. If you would like, you don't have to, if you would like to put your name and address, and, and uh, there's a column there if you would like to get our newsletters, oh, uh, you're welcome uh, to uh, check that column, and uh, we will put you on our mailing list. Uh, if you would like. If you don't want to be on another mailing list, uh, just pass it on. That's okay. We under, understand. Some of us are on too many mailing lists. And we don't sell our mailing lists. And we don't give them away either. Uh, I can assure you we, we don't do that. And uh, I appreciate listening to Doug Rice uh, of Stewart's Foundation and all that he uh, gave us this morning. Uh, we, we partner together uh, with investment management, uh, money management, and in the plan giving program. Even though we're quite separate organizations, we partner together and uh, we enjoy the fellowship uh, together. So leaving a legacy of Christian fellowship. Uh, Brother Dave started off this uh, morning by uh, quoting uh, from Two Kings about setting your house in order. Yeah, before we die. For, uh, you know, we don't have the, um, the uh, benefit of knowing that we've got 15 years to live. Uh, Hezekiah did, and he was in, in, encouraged to put his house in order. 15 years. Um, so, believers' stewardship services, um, who are we? 
uh, you probably never heard of us before. And I, I understand that um, because we, uh, you know, we live in a cornfield in Iowa. Uh, you know, who's ever, Iowa? You mean Ohio? No, you mean Idaho? No, I don't know. But, you know, one has potatoes and the other has corn, you know, and, and, and so people are all mixed up. Iowa, where is that? You know, even when we, the school, I was uh, with Emmaus Bible School in uh, Oak Park uh, for years uh, when we came over from Africa uh, to be the business administrator at the, at the college. It's a college now, but it was a school there in uh, Oak Park. And when we said we were moving to Iowa, which is only three hours away, uh, is a borders uh, uh, Illinois uh, with the Mississippi River, but it's only three hours from O'Hare Airport to uh, Dubuque, Iowa. And they said, "Where is Iowa?" You know, so many people in Chicago didn't even know where Iowa was. Well, I'm not going to put you to the test and have a map up here, um, but uh, we love it there. We're not going back to Chicago. We are not going back. And every time I go in there, I'm glad I leave uh, and uh, go home. So who are we? We're an assembly ministry um, for believers in the assembly, specifically, primarily. Now, if you have a believer, a a relative who's a believer, and they go to another uh, church, and you say, my sister really needs help, of course we'll help. You know, but we are primarily focused on the Lord's people in the assemblies because there was no one rendering that particular service. And so we want to, to do that. Uh, we're a spin-off from Emmaus Trust Services. When I was business administrator at Emmaus, I had this burden uh, and confirmed in many ways to start this ministry. So after, 26, uh, after 16 years as business administrator, we started Emmaus Trust Services. And then nine years later, we spun it off into this particular entity called Believers Stewardship Services. Our mission is very clear. It's a a ministry designed to glorify God by assisting Christians accomplish their financial and estate planning goals in fulfilling biblical stewardship. Isn't that simple? It's quite uh, uh, simple indeed to get the, the concept. But we're a tax-exempt, 501c public uh, charity. We've got a board of 10 directors to whom we are accountable. And uh, we've got the qualified, professional, and experienced staff in order to uh, complete this uh, ministry. We're, um, we're uh, not, specifically, we're not fundraising. I want to make that clear. We're not here to fundraise. We don't fundraise for anyone. We don't fundraise for ourselves. And uh, so you can put away your checkbooks and purses. We're not sending the the basket around. We're not uh, fundraising. We're here to simply uh, educate and to encourage and to enable you to accomplish your stewardship goals. We say we're leaving a legacy of Christian uh, uh, stewardship. So therefore, it must be based uh, on the Bible. It must be based uh, biblically. And uh, the two McDonald's uh, wrote a book uh, on uh, creating a successful marriage. And they say that the basic 
thesis of stewardship is that a believer's possessions are gifts from God's bounty to be used for his glory. That's as simple as that. And uh, it, this is affirmed by Scripture in Psalm uh, 24 where we say the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Uh, and uh, so we're basically understanding that the Lord owns everything. We don't own anything. He gave it to us as stewards in trust so that what we've got to give it back and account for what he has uh, given to us. David, when all the materials were brought together for the building of the temple, and at that uh, he prayed this at that time, he said uh, to, uh, to everyone in his prayer that... Uh, for all things come from you, and of your own uh, we have uh, given you. In other words, we're giving back uh, what we already received from him. Uh, that's ownership. Then we talk about uh, planning as well. Um, there's a rich farmer in Luke chapter 12. And he thought, wow, I've had a wonderful crop. I'm going to build a new barn. I'm going to take it easy. And the Lord said, you're a fool. As uh, President Dan Smith, uh, or now Chancellor Dan Smith of Emmaus Bible College said, the only guy that I know in the scriptures that was planning to retire, and the Lord called him a fool. <laughs> so be careful in your retirement, eh, folks. Uh, so people are always asking me when I'm going to retire. And I say, well, I don't want to be called a fool. So um, we'll march on. Uh, in Psalm 17, it's an interesting scripture because it's kind of hidden in the Psalms there. And uh, David, uh, the psalmist, is saying, uh, first of all, he prays a precatory prayer, you know, where he wants God to bring judgment down on his uh, enemy. And then he says he wants deliverance. He wants deliverance from the men of this world. Referring to the heathen, referring to those who have not uh, trusted God. He wants deliverance from them. They are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possessions to them. He says, they get, this is their life. This is, my mother used to say to him, say to me, she says, well Dave, this is the only heaven that these people are going to see right here on earth. Huh? What kind of heaven is this uh, today? But, what is it they do? They leave everything to their children. Huh. Men of, that's what the people of this world. So what distinguishes you as a believer when you create your estate plan? What distinguishes you? How, how, how is it a, a Christian's will? One of the brochures that we have in our packet that you have is called a Christian's will. So two things that will distinguish you as a Christian... Uh, or your will as a Christian's will is one that you uh, acknowledge and make a testimony leave a testimony as to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. Secondly, you'll want to honor the Lord and his work by leaving something uh, for him and we've already addressed uh, Hezekiah uh, in Second Kings 20 so how do you measure wealth? How do you measure wealth? 
financial success is not measured by assets, but by freedom from greed, worry, and bondage. I understand Bill Gates is no longer the richest man in the world. Are you crying for him? Are you shedding a tear yet? Uh, no. How, how do they measure his wealth? Well, it's measured by dollars. Yeah? But that's not how you measure financial success. It's uh, measured by freedom from greed, worry, and bondage. Stewardship success is not measured by how much we give, by how much, but by how much we retain for ourselves. So, I've had lots of students, young people come to me, and older people say, well, how much should I give to the Lord? And, you know, this 10% hits us all the time. Well, if you really want to go, uh, be under the law and follow the Mosaic law, please make it a lot more than 10%. 10% for the temple, 10% for the people that worked in the temple, and 10% every three years for the poor. How much is that? That's 23 and a third percent per annum. So where do you get this 10% from? Huh? No, we want to... Uh, you know, it's as we have been prospered. It can be. I knew a man who gave 90% of his income away to the Lord's work. Yeah. 90%. Actually, 92.5%, he told us one day. 92.5%. Well, you say he must have had a lot of income because he lived on only 7.5%. Well, I tell you, you could walk into his house and there was holes in the carpet. There was old furniture there and it wasn't antique. It was just old, worn furniture. He didn't live it up. He could have, but he gave to the Lord. I'm going to hand over to um, Ella at this point in time, and uh, she will continue uh, with um, the overview that so she's going to go, you go ahead. Biblically speaking, we have a... Thank you. you want this? Sure. Biblically speaking, we have a duty to give. Legally speaking, there is a way that you have to go about it. Otherwise, the law says that they will decide for you how you will pass on your assets, your wealth, your estate, um, your income, whatever you've acquired, whatever is in your name when you pass away. So today we're going to talk about five primary estate planning documents. We're going to talk about what you need to have. Folks ask me all the time, what exactly do I need to have? Bare bones, you got to have these five, okay? And then we'll talk about probate and will substitutes. Folks will say, hey, what if I have this other thing instead? And I'll let you know what are the ramifications of those uh, documents or those decisions. What does that look like? And then we'll talk about three planned giving tools, and Dave will give you some options that BSS offers for those, Okay. So let's start with the estate planning documents. The first is your last will and testament. You probably are very familiar with this document. And it is the document in which you tell the probate court what you want to happen to your assets. And so folks will ask me, the probate court, does my will go to probate? And the answer is yes. Okay? So next to the last will and testament, you can write probate. That's where that instrument will take you. Another document that we recommend you have so as to avoid probate is a revocable living trust. It is a document similar to a contract that you make with yourself during your life and with your beneficiaries or your successors upon your passing. And in this document, 
you state what you want to happen to your assets and how they should pass on and how they should avoid probate. Okay? This document makes it so that your children, if they are minors, can be provided for, and we don't have to do an additional probate for them, a guardianship. Okay? It also will be helpful in avoiding, here in uh, Florida, we call them adult guardianship proceedings. Yeah? So if your brain is alive, but you're mentally incapacitated, the probate court will get involved. And that's called a living probate, also known as a guardianship proceeding. We can avoid that with a revocable living trust. We'll also talk about a general power of attorney, and it's durable. So if you have one done, go home and make sure it's a durable power of attorney. And I'll tell you more about that. And we'll talk about your durable health care power of attorney. Here in Florida, it's also called a health care surrogate designation. I don't know that you all have been told this. I am an attorney in Florida, licensed in Florida and in California. I've practiced for secular firms in Florida and in California, and I've served clients for over eight years, um, so almost a decade. I've got two kids. I have an eight-year-old daughter and a four-year-old, five-year-old son, Peter, and um, they are my greatest you know, greatest goal right now, besides the Lord and our family, this is what I do and why I do it. Um, so there are some additional documents. If you have minor children, come talk to me. There are some additional documents that we can do for you. There are some documents I was speaking with a young mom earlier we can do to make sure that your kids don't go to Child Protective Services. If you are found on the side of the road and the Police don't know what to do with you when there's a minor child. Child Protective Services or the Department of Health and Family will be called in, and your kids could end up in a very strange situation. We can put forth some temporary guardianship proceedings, legal documents, that will say what you want done instead. Because the mamas in this room, we have a plan. It just is in here, and we need to make sure that it gets down in here. And then we'll also talk about your health care document, and we'll talk about your living will. How many of you do you remember Terry Schiavo? It happened in this state. We still talk about it on the other coast. We talk about Terry Schiavo. I was practicing in Tampa, Florida when that was going on, and the judges in the next county over were all recusing themselves. Nobody wants to step into that situation when it's not been decided. And so we're going to tell you how a living will makes it so that you cannot have that situation happen to you. So, basically, the law recognizes these forms of your assets being distributed upon your passing, okay? Your assets are your wealth, your retirement, your bank accounts, your real estate, anything that is transferable, okay? And you can pass these on by will or trust, by will substitutes, there's some other venues you can use, and I'll tell you what the problem with those might be and some consequences. Hey, they might be a good pick for you, but let's discuss, do you understand fully what the consequences are if you choose those? And then by state laws of intestacy. Intestacy is a big word. All it means is you didn't say. The the probate court says you did not say what you want to happen, so we're going to give you the default. Okay? So in Florida, let's talk about What does the default look like? 
The next slide says non-homestead intestacy succession. It's non-homestead because homestead intestacy is even different. <laughs> In Florida, you all have something that's wonderful, okay? O.J. Simpson lost his civil trial in California, and what is the first thing he did? Anybody? He came to Florida and bought a big house because we have creditor protection in Florida. We have superior creditor protection in Florida, and the homestead protection is the most superior of them all. And so for that reason, we also have some other rules. I'm going to tell you a story about my friend Ashley. I went to law school with Ashley. Ashley told me that her mom was trying to sell their house, but couldn't because her father had passed away without a will, and her minor sister, Mackenzie, owned part of the house. And so her mother found herself paying for an attorney ad litem to represent Mackenzie to be able to sell the house so that she could provide for these girls that she had been widowed and now need to provide for them. Okay, Homestead with a minor child makes it very difficult to pass on. If you are married in Florida and you have a home and you pass away and you have a minor child, that minor child ha owns the home. Your spouse only gets a life estate. That means they're not going to get kicked out of the home. <laughs> that means that your sweet little three-year-old cannot kick out your spouse. Great, great. I'm thrilled to hear it. But guess what? It also means that your three-year-old is making it hard for your spouse to sell that house if your spouse needs to do it, to move on, to move into a smaller home, to move to somewhere where she could get help from her family members. Okay. So that happens under intestacy laws in Florida all the time. This is when I'm telling you, like, default might work for you, but usually it doesn't. I had a boss once who said, one size fits all really means one size fits none. Okay? Um, otherwise, you can look at the table. It's very easy to determine what happens to your non-homestead assets. These are everything but your home. You only have one homestead in Florida, right? All your other property is real property. So the rest would pass under these determinations. If you die with children but no spouse, your kids will inherit everything. That might be what you want to happen. That might be a good default for you. Or it might be like, oh, I actually I don't want that to happen. Or if you pass away with your spouse but no children, your spouse inherits everything. And then it gets a lot more complicated the further down you go. And you can determine where you are today. I highly recommend that as we discuss today, you think about much like the scripture said, that tomorrow is not guaranteed. What would happen today? Let's talk about specifically what does your estate look like? What do your assets look like? How does your home look like? What are your needs like today? And that's what we plan for when we plan, okay? So a breakdown of your total gross estate. This is for federal purposes. Uh, Doug made a really great point of saying there's federal law, there's state law. Similarly with probate, um, there's your total gross estate, which is for federal purposes, everything that you own, all everything that you pay taxes on, everything that you don't pay taxes on because you're putting taxes off because <laughs> of their retirement. All those things are your gross estate. However, there's your probate estate under state law, and then there's your non-probate estate. This is not in stone, but generally generally, these sort of assets are under your probate, your real estate, your personal property. Sometimes it's called tangible personal property. Yeah, that's just your things you can touch, your pots and pans, your china, your jewelry, your grandfather clock, 
your stocks and bonds and mutual funds, those are all probate. These will all go to probate court, and I'll tell you what that means for you. If you pass away and your name is on them, they will go to probate court if you don't have another plan. And your business interests. Folks, again, I had a friend whose mom had trouble with the partner in a business establishment because her husband was the only other partner in the thing. If you pass away, do you know that your spouse has no rights to your business unless you've stated otherwise? So your spouse may not be able to walk into a meeting with your partner and say, okay, now I need to take half or I need you to sell because I need to feed the kids. Okay? That person, your spouse, does not have those rights unless you give them to them. And the way you would do that is with these documents. Or maybe you have already. Let's see. Is your partnership agreement already incorporating things like that? We'd have to take a look. And then non-probate assets are usually ones that have some um, some sort of provision for passing upon death. Um, They're usually called beneficiary designations. Yeah. So we have joint tenants with right of survivorship. Here in Florida, on your homestead and on your deeds, if you're married, yours is not going to say joint tenants with right of survivorship. It's going to say tenants by the entireties. Only in Florida. That's the rule. So if you pull out your homestead deed and you look at it and you're like, oh, this is husband and wife tenants with right of entireties, that's good. That's really good. That's even stronger, okay? It means the same thing. It means if one of you passes away, the remaining spouse owns the rest of the property. And then there are trust assets that are non-probate. There's life insurance. There's IRAs and bank accounts and some mutual funds. And again, those are because you will probably have payable upon death or transfer on death designations. Banks do a good job of putting people on there for you or making you do it. Sometimes they make poor choices for you. So make sure that your attorney is helping you make those designations. We're going to talk about the disadvantages of probate. So I've said probate, and I've said it like it's kind of a smelly word, but do you know why? Has anybody had experience with probate? Have any of you experienced probate in Florida? Okay. It is. Can you attest to the fact that it's complex (laughs) and that it's costly? In Florida, it's less costly than in California, but in Florida, I would say about 3% of your estate is going to be taken off the top for probate costs. 3%. Could you do something else with that 3%, do you think? Could you leave it to the Lord's work? Could you fund some other sort of need with that 3%? And then there's also lack of privacy. Did you know that probate is a public proceeding? So you can go to the courthouse and pull the will of any very famous person. Um, One of my old bosses used to show you the will of Anna Nicole Smith. And say, you know why I'm showing you the will of Anna and Nicole Smith? Because I can. And you might think, I'm not her. Who's going to care that my proceedings are public? And the answer is lots of people. People who want to prey on your beneficiaries. They will call them up and say, hey, I see that you're earning um, some income from your folks. I have a business proposition for you. I think you should invest in this really great idea I have offshore or whatever else, right? And you might have um, very capable beneficiaries, and even still, they do not want to be harassed, okay? So staying out of probate is a good idea for privacy's sake. 
And there's also a time delay. Probate will always take longer than anybody suggests. <laughs> always. Um, it'll take about nine months in Florida. That's an average. And that's money tied up, earning little to no interest, doing little to no good. And then there are will substitutes. There's jointly, I'm going to fly through these because I'm going to tell you the problem with some of these later. So there's um, jointly owned property. I have an elderly woman at my assembly who says, hey, my house is jointly deeded with my sister. So if I pass, my sister gets it. And I said, all right, how do you feel about that? Oh, I think that's all right. And what if she passes and you pass too close to do anything about it? Well, we don't know. There's no backup. Then there's life insurance. A life insurance could be a will substitute. It's a method by which money is passed outside of probate. Then there's contracts or agreements. I was talking about partnership agreements. Yeah. And then there's 401ks and 403bs and the retirement trusts. By the way, do you all know you never put a retirement asset into a trust? Shake your head. Yes. Okay. We never put a retirement asset into a revocable living trust. It is tax inefficient. You will get taxed at a severely higher rate. There are special types of trusts that you can put retirement assets into. But make sure that your retirement assets do not have your trust as a beneficiary. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Right. So don't put your trust as your beneficiary of your Roth. Um, and then we talk about trusts. There are preferred method. In 50 states, attorneys would prefer that you use a trust. Um, and then there are bank accounts, payable on debt, mutual funds, and brokerage accounts. These are some of the problems with joint ownership. You lose control. Folks, if you own a bank account with your sister and she crashes the car and gets sued, they can come after both your money in that account. Okay. Um, you may unintentionally disinherit family. You might have your eldest child on the bank account with you because it's very convenient and she can write the checks. It also means that the account is hers upon your passing. Did you all know that? I had clients that didn't know that. They were so frustrated because they thought she knew she had to share. She didn't. She didn't have to share. Um, if the other owner is sued, you could end up being sued, and creditors could attack other owners' share. Same thing. Depending on the type of joint ownership, it could still go through probate. Um, if, it's, if it's joint tenancy or tenancy in common, same thing. Upon your passing, it doesn't automatically go to the survivor. You would still probate half an interest in a property. You can probate a shoe. <laughs> you can probate all sorts of things, half an interest, um, and it, folks can squabble over it, and it can cost fees. And there are some unfavorable tax ramifications. When you put your child on your bank account, you're gifting them half of that account, at least. Are they paying gift tax on that? Should they be? That's something you might need to consider, or the home, or another real estate property. When you put them on something big like that, are you giving them a gift? Should you be filing a gift tax return? There are, of course, advantages to a revocable living trust. This is my favorite because I've told you all the awful, awful things that could happen if you don't, and now I'm telling you that this is the remedy. <laughs> that is the disease. This is the remedy. Um, we can avoid probate, and we can do it with a revocable living trust. It's less costly and less complex in the very end. 
and it avoids joint ownership problems. Um, you don't have to designate somebody as a joint owner. They can just be successor. If something happens to you, then they, then they step up and they take responsibility. And privacy, a trust is not filed in public records. Nobody's going to be calling up your beneficiaries, offering them some sort of scheme. And it's time-saving. Um, Dave and I both have been working in this a long time, and we don't take nine months to take care of a trust. Trust administration can go a lot faster. And con- uh, continuity and periods of disability are in, co- in con- incompetence. For a minute, my glasses blurred. Um, so... Again, this has to do with the guardianship proceedings. I had a very sweet elderly man come up to me when I practiced in Tampa, Florida, and he said, my wife is incapacitated. I need to file for services, government services for her. How can I do that when I can't sign on her behalf? The hospital says I have to open guardianship. And I was like, oh, you do? It's terrible. A guardianship proceeding costs like $2,500. And then you have court interference for the remainder of that person's life. It's an awful, awful thing to have to do to then only be able to turn around and apply for government benefits. Um, So a trust would have been preferred or um, another document. I'll tell you about that. It also minimizes estate taxes. There are some methods that some of you will need added into your trust, some tax methods to save on estate taxes. However... A living trust is not designed to save income taxes. For purposes of the trust, you are the trust, and it is you. And for purposes of the IRS, you will be paying the trust taxes. So you're not saving any taxes necessarily in designating a trust. It's a very transparent sort of document. Um, However, it is still necessary to save probate fees and things like that. The other thing I would say, um, I had somebody ask me this, you cannot avoid your own creditors by opening up a trust. That's called fraud, and we don't do that. (laughs) So a trust will not protect you from your creditors. Um, Here in Florida, you really already have great creditor protection um, by having assets jointly with your spouse or under homestead or things like that. Um, And then there are some things you can write into your trust to afford creditor protection to your children. It's really neat tool we have. Are you doing this one, Dave? Yes, sir. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Anna. And um, isn't it great to have an attorney that you can turn to at any time and get an answer? And, uh, you know, the the question was asked uh, earlier about costs. How much is this going to cost you? On page six, there are the five documents. We already looked at those. Uh, These are the five documents. If you take nothing else away from the seminar this morning, just remember page six. Those are the documents you need. So you're going to run down to the local attorney and say, Counsel, I would need these five documents. How much will you charge me? How much will he charge you? 2500 Any more? I feel like an auctioneer here. Uh, how much? 800 Boy, oh, he's a cheap attorney. Um, go to him. Yeah. Uh, you don't, any, any, uh, any other ideas here in Florida? Sorry? 5000 
That sounds like a California lawyer to me. Uh, okay, so 2500 1200 1500 You know what it's going to cost you if you uh, do what we suggest that you do, recommend you do? How much? Nada. Nothing. Okay? Our services are rendered as unto the Lord. We're not going to charge the Lord's people for it. Now, let me say... Our, re- our services are rendered free of charge, but they're not free of cost, obviously. And uh, so if you want to make a donation to Believer's Stewardship Services, uh, and obviously we're not going to be, you know, you give us a donation of two and a half thousand, we'll think that, well, you, you, are you sure you can afford this, you know? We're not going to bank that check until we know that you can. No, we're not going to, we're not suggesting. But, you know, $500 or whatever you, you want to pay, 200 100 some people pay nothing. They say, well, you, you said there's no charge. That's right. You will not get a bill from us. So just to, uh, um, help you uh, understand there. Those five documents these are critical five documents and depending on circumstance you may need more uh, documents um, so but our, our services are rendered uh, free of charge that's uh, I, I believe the way the Lord would have it and uh, we want to uh, honor the Lord in that uh, regard. And we're going to move on to another aspect of uh, Christian stewardship. Uh, stewardship where you can um, be get, get a little fancy, if you like, with what uh, you do and what will help you as well as help the Lord's work. Before we do that, I want to just mention uh, that we have on uh, page uh, 14, I think it is, um, the federal estate and uh, gift tax credit. Um, as you know, uh, as may, some of you may know, that uh, there's an exemption. Each individual has an exemption of 5.4 million. I'm assuming that, you know, I'm talking way above most people's heads when we talk about this. But it's also indexed for inflation. So next year, it'll be more than 5.4 million. But one of the wonderful things that Congress has done, few wonderful things, is that they've made it portable. So I'm married to my wife, Lorraine, and I die... And uh, I've only used up one million of the 25 million that I have. Come on, keep dreaming. But um, I've got 25 million. I've only used up one million. She's now got 4.4 million to carry forward. So really you can shelter 10.8 million, almost 11 million dollars you can shelter from federal income tax. Now there's also state tax, but we don't worry about that here in Florida at this point in time. That could always change. There's one thing that uh, you've got to note if you're a snowbird or no snowbirds, uh, remind them that their state may have said, well if the federal government doesn't want uh, the death tax, we do. The state does. And so they've decoupled from the federal government and they will charge you. So you've got to protect yourself in that regard. And all this can be done legally 
And it's expected that you should do it to avoid uh, income tax. I had a lady in Orlando years ago, and uh, she, you know, when the uh, tax exemption was only $600,000, as some of you may remember those days. And uh, she had property that was worth millions, right in Orlando near the city center. And uh, I said, well, you know, you can avoid... Uh, est- uh, federal estate taxes on uh, that property when uh, you die. She said, you know, the government's been real good to me. And I think it deserves my, my taxes. I said, well, that's, that's, that's wonderful that you can say that of the government uh, here in the United States. I don't know if she, was, if she were alive today, she would say the same thing. But that's what she said. I said, but, you know, how well will the government use that money? And she didn't answer me. I said, well, you know, if you give it to the Lord's work, it's an investment for eternity. It's not just an investment for a a short period of time. So uh, be careful on that if uh, you or your friends or relatives are anywhere close to, to that. Now, let me talk to you about some planned giving instruments. A charitable gift annuity. I mean, some of you, if you're in touch with um, insurance agents, uh, they'll have sold you an annuity. Very, very popular today. You know why it's so popular? Because it's one of the best commission vehicles that there are. Uh, what they earn is a fantastic commission. And so they'll sell it to you because of the guarantee and the, you can do this and do that and so on. But be careful. I'm not saying annuities, you shouldn't invest in them. But be careful and read the fine print. Be very careful. In fact, call us up. We have a certified financial planner. Uh, his name was Drew Tickey. Doug uh, Rice was talking about him. And uh, Drew will give you the lowdown on uh, annuities. In fact, Fisher Investments, you may see them advertising in the paper um, or on TV uh, quite a lot. Uh, They will send you a document that will give you a lowdown on annuities. Be careful with annuities. I've just had a a lady uh, in Michigan, and uh, she put down $100,000. And you know, it's going to be 10 or 11 years before she can get her money back without a surrender charge. Huge. In fact, the commission was 14%. And uh, I know the insurance agent uh, that sold uh, her, or the investment guy that sold her uh, this annuity, and uh, he lives high on the hog, we would say in Iowa. You know, high on the hog. He He does very, very well. Well, be careful with commercial annuities. Here's another opportunity. It's called an annuity simply because it gives, you, gives back a payment to you every year. A charitable gift annuity. So it's to a charity. It is actually a gift, but it's a gift that returns an income. And uh, that's what uh, we have. So the you as the donor just simply give 5000 10000 whatever you, you want to invest with the charity, and the charity will give you uh, a, a payment back. We pay every quarter. Uh, we like uh, the quarterly 
uh, payments. Now, what are the uh, charitable gift annuity characteristics? It's, uh, first of all, an irrevocable or irrevocable gift. Unlike a CD, you can't get your money back. So that is important that we, that some people think, well, I can get my money back uh, in five years' time. No, it's a gift. It's a charitable gift. But it's a charitable gift that will give you money uh, for the rest of your life. Actually, it will give you a, a current tax uh, deduction, not for the face value, but for the actuarial value of that uh, gift. Uh, annuity and uh, it's an income for life and when we get a death certificate then we do no longer pay I'm going to tell you about a unique aspect of our charitable gift annuity that you won't hear from another charity to the best of my knowledge and belief that's my caveat counsel uh, there may be some uh, charity that does the same as we do uh, but uh, I'll leave you in suspense on, on that. Um, a portion of uh, the um, a portion of the uh, actual gift is uh, uh, of the sorry of the payout that we give you is tax free. Why is it tax free? It, because you're getting your principal back over your life expectancy. IRS has already decided how long you're going to live. You know that? So I'm 75 years old. They've said you're going to live 11.6 years. That's life expectancy. How do they come up with those tables? Well, every 10 years there's a census. And they look at the mortality. How many people died over time and what their ages were. And they come up with these uh, averages. And uh, they, so you're getting your principal back over your life expectancy. When you give some principal and then you get back the principal, there's no income. So that's not income. It's a return of principal, so it's non-taxable. But it's only non-taxable for your life expectancy. After that, you pay tax on the total annuity. Uh, sometimes it's referred to as interest, but that's incorrect. It's a payout because it's not technically uh, interest. Now, the uh, age determines your uh, rates. Now, if there is a brochure here called uh, Charitable Gift Annuities, and inside the brochure are, is a table showing the American Council on Gift Annuities their suggested rates. And uh, you, you can look up your age. And uh, do, do you have one? Let's, uh, let's do that uh, for a moment. Charitable gift annuities. Um, it's a little. Sure. Um, little brochure, and inside is this white table. Uh, there, suggested annuity rates, and then the tables are all in there. So if you're single, just uh, this first panel says single life. So. And it's to your nearest age, by the way. Um, so if you're going to be 75 on Christmas Day, well, you go to uh, 75. Uh, if it's more than six months, well, then you are uh, at your current age. So if I'm 75 years of age, uh, uh, on Christmas Day, I get 5.8%. That's guaranteed for the rest of your life. Now... 
if you're married, then you go to two lives, joint and survivors. You can't go to three lives or four lives. It's only two lives. Now, it can be your uh, life and someone else's life. It can be your cousin. It can be just your friend in the assembly. It, uh, it doesn't have to be your spouse. It, but it can only be two. And it's joint and survivor. So when you die, the survivor gets the whole annuity. Got it? That's pretty simple. And that's the beauty about a charitable gift annuity, is it's a very simple contract. You give money, you get money back the rest of your life, and if you die, your wife gets it for the rest of her life. When she dies, it remains with the charity. And here's the unique aspect of our gift annuities. You can decide which part of the Lord's work you want to give that annuity to. This is often used as a fundraising tool by charities. Because when you die, they keep the money. We have a different perspective. We want to help the Lord's people, the Lord's work as a whole. So you can say, well, Boulevard Bible Chapel, I, I want it to go there. And so, voila, the elders will announce and when they give their financial report to the assembly, that they have received this gift annuity, uh, the proceeds of gift annuity, from Believer Stewardship Services, but it was from, and if you don't mind your name being mentioned, uh, from Mrs. Jones. Uh, you can do it anonymously as well, if you wish. So uh, it's, it's a very simple way. But it may not be Boulevard. It might be, uh, you know, something to do with uh, radio or something to do with higher education. It can be, you know, Stewards Foundation, you know, to help uh, build more assemblies. That's what um, Doug was talking about. Uh, this kind of gift helps uh, the body of Christ among the assemblies to expand and uh, continue the work uh, of uh, the Lord. So we're uh, at uh, the, the, the charitable gift annuities. There's, um, you know, you avoid. You can give, for example, stock or real estate uh, that has appreciated over the years. Question, yes, sir. It has to be a 501c3, right? You can't be an individual who's in That is correct. Can you repeat the question? Yeah. The question is, when the, when the gift annuity matures, it must go to a charity. No, you're going to perform it. They can't designate before the... Okay, okay. When it is done, then you can designate that to a 501c3 alone, right? Not an individual... When, if you took one out, you die, it must go to a charity. Well, it goes to the charity that issued you the gift annuity. And the Believer Stewardship Services will only give to it another charity, another 501c, or a church, which, you know, it doesn't have to be incorporated. It doesn't have to have the designation of a 501c3. We encourage that. We encourage incorporation, but uh, it must go to a 501c3 or a church. Can it be a foreign trust? Can it, if, if the foreign trust is a bona fide charity, it can go overseas as well. When we do that, we have to account to the government in our 990 that uh, that's our 
charity's income tax return, we have to uh, account to the government that uh, we have monitored that gift, that it's gone for the purpose for which it was given, and we have to have accounting back. And we do that. For example, there's a girl's home in Romania. Uh, I don't know if you, any of you remember Ron and Sue Bates. They started this um, home uh, in Romania. And uh, we continue, it continues today, uh, helping uh, girls and um, people can donate to Believer Stewardship Services through our donor advised fund and that then gets transmitted to Romania. But from Romania, we require their board of directors to account as, uh, to us how they've done this so that we can in turn, uh, how they've used the money so that we can in turn say, yes, we are monitoring what we give. So that there's no scam, there's no uh, facade at all, you know, that we're not uh, giving to some terrorist organization or, or whatever. Uh, that, uh, so, does that answer your question, sir? Yes. Good. Yeah, relatives. You can't give to relatives. No, um, they would have to take out the gift annuity. But it all, you know, the whole emphasis is on charity and giving to the Lord's uh, work. Um, there are some tax advantages in here uh, up front in the year that you give it. And, of course, if you've given too much, uh, more than 50% of your adjusted gross income, you can carry it forward for another five years. So you've got six years to use up that charitable uh, deduction. And uh, so we emphasize number 10 uh, on our sheet there that you can nominate the charity of your choice. You, you don't have to give Believer's Stewardship Services anything. We're glad to be of service to the Lord's uh, work. Uh, just to give you an example as to how... Sorry. Just to clarify what you said, I think, if, if you don't mind me just in it. Sure. So if you take out a charitable gift annuity through some other charitable organization, uh, at the time of your death, they, they basically receive all of that gift themselves, but what Believer's Stewardship Service is offering is that you will then forward that on to some other charity to continue the Lord's work upon that time. Exactly. You've got it absolutely right. That's a, exactly what we do. We do not... If you have given us a letter saying that we want you to give this to CMML, give it to Stewart's Foundation, we will do that in its entirety, 100%. We don't take... 10%, 15%, whatever. Uh, we don't do that. Now, I'm not criticizing others who do that. I'm just saying we don't do that. We pass it through. Just like every gift you send to CMML right now, they pass 100 cents in the dollar uh, to the missionary. All right? Any other questions right now? We'll move on to um, just give you an illustration of Mrs. Green's estate, and I don't want to uh, spend too much time here, but, you know, if you've got your money in the bank, how much interest are you earning right now? A CD, a wonderful, big jumbo CD. How much are you getting? Well, maybe 1.2%. Uh, you know, so what if you get 1.2%? Um, 
this lady's getting 1.13%. Anyway, the bottom line is that she's earning 362 do- um, what was that, $562, and uh, if she took out a gift annuity, she'd be earning 3735 Sure, she's giving it away, but you know what? She wanted to give it away to the Lord's work in her will, in her trust. She was going to give it away anyway. So why not give it now and take some back, some income? That she will turn around and give more away. So it uh, is uh, a great way uh, to go uh, there. Um, and here, uh, the next uh, page, um, we'll move on to the next page about Mr. White. He's got a problem. We don't call them problems anymore. We call them challenges. eh? And uh, Mr. White wants more retirement income and wants to provide for the Lord's work. Wow. He wants more and he wants to give more. So how do you do that? All right. He takes out uh, a deferred gift annuity. So I'm 50 years old. I say, well, I'm going to retire at 65. Well, you probably will have to stretch that a little bit uh, from now on. And uh, it might be 67 or 70. But, okay, so you're going to retire. So you give, take out a deferred gift annuity. What's deferred? It's the income to you. You see, what the type of annuity we've just been talking about is an immediate a gift annuity. Now you can defer the payments for 15 years from 50 to 65 and your income will be significantly higher as a result of doing that. And I leave you to read through that with gift annuities. We try to rush on here. Charitable remainder trusts. Doug also had that up on the screen. Charitable remainder trust. There's two kinds. There's an annuity trust that will pay you a set income for life. Correction. A set income as long as there's money in that trust. (laughs) Not like a gift annuity. You see, the charities on the hook with a gift annuity, they have to pay whether... You know, if they're going to go broke, what happens? Another charity will take it over and uh, pay. Uh, There are state regulations on these gift annuities here in Florida. We have to account to the state every year uh, on what we're doing. We're licensed, uh, in other words, uh, and incorporated in the state of, uh, of Florida. Some states don't require that. Texas just says, well, tell us that you're doing it. Michigan says, we don't want to hear from you. So, you know, you've got to just know what the states uh, want. So the annuity trust gives you a set amount of income every uh, quarter, every year. Actual dollar percentage. Never changes. The uni trust, however, can fluctuate because it gets revalued every January 1 and uh, so it, it, it's, uh, it's still maybe, say, five, it's a minimum of 5%, by the way, that uh, you get from that. And from a charitable remainder trust, you can um, 
You can uh, provide for a gift for charity. You receive income for life. Receive big income tax tax deduction and uh, capital gains. uh, Avoid the tax there. Avoid probate on transfers uh, that have made, and of course, avoid estate taxes as well. It's a great way to go. What happens? You are the grantor or donor. You give an asset and you put it into a separate trust. This is a separate trust. It's a separate legal entity. It's got its own EIN, its own tax ID. You put it in there, and then that trust, the trustee of that trust, and we believe as stewardship services are uh, often trustees, we give the income back uh, to you. And then when you die, it goes to the Lord's work. And you decide uh, what part of the Lord's work it, it goes to. Now, you say, well, if I do that, I'm disinheriting my kids. All right? You're disinheriting your kids. That's true. So, how do you re- re-inherit them? <laughs> You're disinheriting them. What you do is you take out a life insurance policy. Now, if it's going to be in the tens of millions of dollars, well, you'll need an irrevocable life insurance trust. Otherwise, you just take out an, a policy and uh, you uh, get uh, the policy payable to the, uh, to the heirs. I just had an example of this. So there's this lady, and her husband knew that he was going to die uh, soon, and so he buys a block of condominiums and says, Dear, dear, there's something to keep you busy when I'm gone. But, you know, after five years, she finds that that's a hassle. She doesn't be bothered with the rents and so on and so on. I'm going to sell it. No, I'm better still. I'm going to give it. So she gives it to a charitable remainder trust. And then the trustee sells those condominiums and has all cash now. And that cash is invested. And every quarter we pay the donor. But what has she done? It was $600,000 of condos. What has she done to her two kids? And they're no longer kids, but uh, her two children. She's disinherited them. Mom, why did you do that? Well, don't worry, dears. I'm going to take out an insurance policy for $600,000, and I'm going to make you the beneficiaries. And you know, when I die, you won't have to be bothered with condominiums, because I I won't possess them. I won't be leaving you condominiums. I'll be leaving you cash. Now, is that good? Yeah. Now, what they're going to do with uh, $300,000 each, that's another story. Uh, But that's what she wants to do. Now, there's a whole lot of things that we can do with life insurance. And uh, I've uh, shown you what uh, you can do. Um, Let me pass that over. I mean, this is stuff that you will want to review together um, and uh, talk about and then give us a call. Um, The best lifetime gifts to charity are those that... Uh, maybe you've got uh, uh, capital appreciation. Your stocks have risen in value. You give that to charity. You avoid the capital gains. So mutual funds, real estate, closely held stock, and on page 24, I show you how that uh, happens. And on um, 
page 25, we talk about uh, other kinds of uh, uh, gifts. Um, and I am going to hand back um, to Ella because she's going to talk to you about a couple of important uh, documents here that, by the way, don't be surprised if your bank uh, says, I don't accept your power of attorney. You've been given a valid power of attorney written up by a local lawyer, and the bank says, we don't want to, you know, we don't, we don't recognize that. And I've, I'm springing this on Ella. Ella, tell us what you would do. I'll tell you. <laughs> um, so a durable power of attorney is a document that controls your financial and taxable and business affairs. You, as the principal, will nominate somebody as the agent to act on your behalf. They get to act in your shoes in regards to, again, your financial, taxable, and business affairs. Um, so if you're incapacitated, your agent under durable power of attorney is allowed to act on your behalf in regards to those business, taxable, and um, financial affairs. They do not act as to your body, okay? So you could designate a different person for your health care surrogate designation, okay? This is just in regards to um, you becoming incapacitated and needing somebody to do your banking or needing somebody to file for government benefits. Remember I was talking about that dear gentleman earlier, his wife needed somebody to file for government benefits on her behalf. Um, this is also somebody who's going to sign your taxes because guess what? If you're in the hospital and incapacitated and it's April, your taxes are still due. The government still wants your taxes filed. This is the person that would sign under that. And Dave is correct. This document changes often. It's a statutory document, but then attorneys try to add additional powers to it to make sure that your agent is empowered to act in the same way that you are. However, a lot of banks feel a lot of liability, and they will not necessarily um, afford this document the rights that it's due. The best thing you could have is have an attorney that is going to put the spine behind this document, unfortunately. Like Dave said, lucky for you all, I practice in Florida. Um, and then also I have this form, and it's just changed. So one of the things I would tell my clients in California is if you have a stale durable power of attorney, a document that's about three to five years old, you need a new one. Okay, Banks will not um, give it the authority it deserves, and they will not allow you to make big um, investment or other type of decisions with this document. They prefer that your successor trustee act in that capacity. They think that a successor trustee is somebody that has better credibility than an agent, and they're more likely to be held liable if they act um, inappropriately. Okay. Any questions? Does that make sense? So like Dave says, you can have a durable power of attorney. You, um, you can think that this is legitimate, but there are a number of things you should do in order to make sure that the banks will actually adhere to it. One is make sure it's not stale. So get a current one if you've had one that's done more than three to five years. And two, don't allow big assets to be controlled by this document. So if you become incapacitated, don't expect that your spouse can sell real estate with your durable power of attorney, is what I'm telling you, okay? Um, it will not happen in Florida. It will not happen in California. And do not expect that banks will allow your 
agent to be able to do other big or risky ventures. It is better to have a trust and a successor trustee handle those financial affairs. Um, the other document is your health one. Oh, excuse me. Let me forward through this. Um, the health care one here in Florida, we call it health care surrogate designation, and it makes somebody your agent, um, and that person is, oh, I did them backwards, folks. That's okay. Listen to my words, not the screen. I apologize. So the health care agent is the person that speaks as to your body, okay? It's also the person that speaks as to your body while you're alive, and they're the one who's going to determine when they pull a plug. So don't make your mother your agent under your, your health care, okay? Your mom can't pull the plug. Um, it's better that you have somebody who's in the medical profession, uh, maybe a sibling, maybe a cousin, um, somebody who knows what your quality of life is going to be like, designated as your agent under that document. And the other thing about this document is that you should have a, a document with it called a living will. The living will actually gives your agent instructions. The law says that nobody is allowed to act on your behalf without your authority. And that authority has to be explicit, not implicit. Implicit means like, yeah, I think they have the right to do this. Explicit means it is in writing and it is notarized and has all the formalities that the state requires. Okay. So in the Terry Shivo situation, there was no living will. She had a husband, and he said, I'm her husband. I implicitly have the authority to make decisions for her. She also had parents, and her parents said, we are her parents. We have implicit authority to make decisions for her, or at least give evidence as to what her wishes would have been. And the judge heard evidence. And you might be thinking like, oh good, it went before a court. And what I'm telling you is we are trying to avoid court interference. We don't want to get into a tussle with banks. You don't want to end up in court. All these things cost money and they are very tedious. Okay? So the more explicit you can be, the more powerful your documents can be, the more current your documents can be, the more you give your agent authority to act on your behalf and you do it with all the current language that the legislature has provided in the state of Florida, the more likely that you are providing a smooth road for them so that they won't have to have somebody else interfere. Did I address that? Okay. And then I will let you finish up. Is that all right? I'm sorry, that wasn't much of a rest. Thank you. So we'll uh, finish up by uh, looking at uh, the next uh, page, uh, page 30, uh, which is called a donor advised fund. Donor advised funds are particularly uh, popular today and they are preferred to private foundations. Private foundations have a lot of administrative responsibilities, tax, excise tax on investments, and uh, they have to file uh, income tax returns. A donor advised fund is very simple. It's simply you sim uh, agree to open up a fund just by a simple two-page agreement stating this is what you, who the authority is on this fund, and you deposit some funds in there, which you get a charitable deduction for. Uh, donor advised funds are, are mostly run by uh, charities. And uh, then from time to time, as you want to make a disbursement, 
you just write to the charity. Emails are acceptable. You write to the charity and say, would you please send uh, CMML, you know, $1,000. I want to benefit uh, 10 missionaries with $100 each. Okay, so you can, you can do that. The charity will do it for you. And, uh, or you can say, I just want to give a gift to uh, Emmaus Bible College or Stewards Foundation or wherever uh, your local assembly is. So that, and, and you don't have to give cash. It can be uh, appreciated assets uh, over uh, a time. So, and there's no costs at all uh, to this. Um, so that is a, a great... Uh, facilitate gifts you know you wake up at the end of the year and say the Lord's been good to us this year we've made a good salary we haven't given as much as we could or should have given so we've got $10,000 to give but it's December 31 uh, how are you going to make the distribution? You want to give to all these charities for all these purposes. You got where the, where, where's the addresses, and you got to dress up all these envelopes. You know, one simple way is one envelope, one address. Send it to Believers Church of Services to your donor advised fund, and then take your time. January, February, March, April. You know, a year later. No, I hope you don't leave it a, a year later. But uh, six months later, you say we give these this gift, and so we send that where you have de- uh, directed, and uh, we tell them that this is a gift from the Ella Gentile uh, Donor Advice Fund. So please acknowledge receipt to Ella Gentile. That's what uh, the donor. How come we got? Back to good grief. Where are we? Anyway, we're there. The next one. All right. One of the things we, uh, one of the legs, one of the ministries of Believer's Stewardship Services is to give support to the two assemblies. And in the package, you have a little brochure called Did You Know? And it uh, tells you of the kind of things that we would do for assemblies. We have a non, uh, we have non-profit governance issues, articles of incorporation, bylaws, uh, tax compliance, commended workers' housing allowance, uh, legal issues, incorporation, tax exempt. And then, should it be that uh, the chapel, you know, there's only six left. And they're all 85 plus years of age. <laughs> and they don't want to be bothered with selling the property and closing down. We help in that regard. You'll notice I don't have a brochure specifically on that. You know, funeral arrangements for chapels. I, 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 I don't. We don't go that way. But people who know who we are and what we do uh, will then turn to us and say, look, uh, here's, um, here's the chapel uh, and this is what we want you to do with the brochure, uh, with the proceeds of the money. Uh, so we've done that, you know. And uh, in fact, uh, Doug was talking about balloon payments. We sold uh, property to uh, an evangelical church because there was no assembly that wanted uh, uh, to continue to the testimony there. And uh, so 
uh, we, we sold it to, to another evangelical church. But after five years, when they were due to pay a balloon payment of $600,000, they had had a split. There were 15 people left, and they said, we can't do it. So we had to take the property back, and then we made a profit. And we sold it for $700,000. <laughs> and then we are able to distribute that money in accordance with what the elders wanted. There's just two or three elders left, but they have directed us in writing what to do with uh, that money. And that's exactly uh, what we do. I uh, can tell you stories of... Uh, uh, situations where the corporation has been allowed to be in, uh, involuntarily dissolved by the state because they didn't follow through and send in their annual report. I can tell you of a horror story of an assembly that didn't know where their title deeds were and they didn't even know who owned the property. So in their Articles of Incorporation, they stated uh, that they owned the property. Well, property doesn't transfer by Articles of Incorporation, transfer by deed. And uh, when I got involved, I said, excuse me, you don't own the property. In fact, the Abundant Life Assembly of God owns the property. And they've owned it since 1930. You've been there since 1925. For five years you owned the property, but five years later somehow a deed got recorded and you didn't own it. But you thought you owned it. You thought you owned it for these past 75 years and you didn't. So be careful with the administration in the uh, assembly. It's very, very uh, important. Um, so we help people with the dissolution. As we also uh, mentioned, or Doug mentioned uh, in his um, uh, report, um, we help with money management. BSS is a registered investment advisor. Drew Tickey is our registered representative. And we give uh, investment counseling to, um, uh, to people, um, individuals, and assemblies, and assembly institutions, and to uh, even uh, Bible camps. We will help with money management in that regard. So it's a, it's a serious process. It's a long process. Uh, it's not just sort of gathering them all in and selling them annuities. We don't do that. Uh, we do income tax planning for individuals, and we, consider, we ask them to consider long-term care insurance. But, you know, long-term care insurance uh, used to be somewhat easier years ago and cheaper. Uh, but there are at least six questions that you've got to ask yourself uh, he here uh, when you come to a long-term care insurance. First of all, your age uh, will uh, determine um, and, and your health. Insurability and age will determine the premium. Uh, a period of coverage, do you want it for just two years, three years? How long are you going to live in the nursing home? 
Um, well, you don't know, but you're, you know, so economically you'll have to make that decision. And so you say, well, three years, five years, whatever it might be. So you've got to determine the period of coverage. You've got to determine the elimination period. Are you going to have the insurance company pay the first month that you move in or six months later? If you make it six months later, your premium will be uh, reduced. What's the extent of the care? Is it going to be home care and facility care, or is it just going to be uh, facility care? A lot of people are going for home care today, but that is getting very expensive. I have a lady in Chicago, and she's paying $6,000, a little over $6,000 a month uh, for home care, uh, about $200 a day. Uh, daily rate of uh, insurance needed. So we have to look at your what money you do have. You've got Social Security and you've got your investments and any other income that you have. And you say, well, all right, that comes to um, $150 a day. But uh, your insurance, uh, what you, the the place that you want to go into, the home costs uh, $200 a day. So you're short $50. So that's the insurance that you need. How much that will that cost? We go into that and then you know if it's $150 today you know that in five years time or in ten years time it's not going to be $150 uh, despite the fact that the government says inflation is only at uh, 1% or, or something like that every time I go to the grocery store I, I think the government is lying to me <laughs> all right final preparations B-I-B-L-E basic instructions before leaving earth Are you ready to go? What about your funeral arrangements? No, you're just going to leave that to the elders of the assembly. (laughs) A lot of people do. So I don't care. I'm not going to be here. I'm enjoying the glories of my eternal home. Let them worry about that. And so the elders have to huddle together and, you know, get hold of the family and so on. How much better would it be if you sat down and said, okay, I want to be buried. I want to be entombed. Well, I can't have both, okay? Um, I want to be cremated or I want to donate my body to for scientific study. You make that decision. Okay? You make that decision. Don't leave it to the elders or your, your relatives. And by the way, if you leave it to your relatives, they'll buy one of the most expensive caskets. Oh, she deserves this, you know. Meanwhile, you know, you don't care. Cardboard box. I just did a cardboard box last September. You know how much it cost me? Oh, not cost me. It cost the, the estate. You know how much? $999 for a cardboard box. Now, I haven't gotten up the courage yet to go to see uh, the funeral director in my town in Dubuque and say, look, I'm going to make my own pine box. And will you still bury me in my pine box? So I don't have to pay you anything. And I'm not paying you $999 for a cardboard box. But you know, that cardboard box has to go into a vault. So what difference does it make? So you're going to put $3,000 casket into a vault? So what is the point? Anyway, think it through. That's a matter of stewardship. It's your decision. We won't criticize you, whatever you do. Um, And the funeral or memorial service. Uh, Think about that. 
who do you want to participate? Uh, um, you know, what hymns, what scriptures? What, uh, help them with the obituary so that the, the kids are not running around saying, Nah, she did this and she did that. And, and, and no, no, she didn't do that. She did this, you know. And, you know, they have a little squabble before mothers even buried. Uh, you know, do it decently and in order and, uh, you know, get that done. Now, none of us want to do that. Because we're not going to die yet. How many of you got all your ducks in a row and everything? <laughs> you would expect that. And if she didn't, I'd want to talk to her. Uh, she's got to practice what she preaches. So, all right. Um, we, we procrastinate, don't we? Some of the things we don't want to do. All right. Final thing before uh, you leave. Here's your homework. If you think you've got everything in order, go through this page, okay? And answer those questions truthfully. That you have everything in order. And if you don't, it says, I don't. I am not satisfied. I have done everything I can to plan prudently for the administration and distribution of my estate. And then you can write to us. And there's an envelope. You put it in there, and we will help you plan appropriately. But where do you start? You start with a personal financial organizer. The packet has one of these for you and you fill that in and send it to us. We'll be glad to work with you. Uh, there'll still be questions, but you'll want to know, uh, you give us who you're going to, uh, who's going to act as your successor trustee if a revocable living trust is appropriate for you. By the way, appropriate uh, living trusts aren't appropriate for absolutely everybody. We will make that uh, decision for you. Ella? A quick measure of living trust is appropriate for you. If your assets exceed the probate value in Florida, and that is $75,000. If you have assets beside your home in excess of $75,000, you need a revocable living trust. Thank you. Thank you. You got that? So, uh, you know, in some cases you might not need it. You've got just one daughter and you're leaving everything to this daughter uh, and it's only, it's less than $75,000. You put everything in joint tenants with right of survivorship. So you don't need a living trust. But you need these other documents that uh, we've been talking about. So your homework would be, first of all, answer all these questions, okay? And then if you're, you haven't passed the exam, the test, then fill in the personal financial organizer and uh, we'll be glad to, to help you. I'm sorry we've gone over time a little bit, but thank you. And, but we do want to open it for more questions at this time. So Ella will help me. Questions? You know how much it's going to cost you? <laughs> Sir, yes. Paul. Oh. 
Yeah, creditors are permitted to file a claim against a trust as well. A trustee still has to pay off creditors or negotiate with them. So you can't avoid your creditors by opening a trust um, legally. Now, you don't have to file notice to creditors with a trust, but you still have a legal duty to pay your creditors. Right. So under a probate situation, you would file notice to creditors and you would clamp down that period. In Florida, the period of time that creditors can file a claim is two years after your death, unless notice to creditors is filed, and then that'll close it down to three months. Answer your question, yes, Dave. Just a question about the notes. We kind of skipped from page 22 to 30. Was that Did we? Oh, we just feel like skipping today. Twenty-two. Uh, I think it was in the transition where Ella filled in an answer to your question. You came back and picked up with page thirty rather than twenty-two. I don't know whether that's something you intended to skip. Yeah, I went very simply over that uh, on purpose. Okay. Um, thinking that, you know, that's self-explanatory, and I just wanted to cut the time on that. Thank you. Thank you. Questions? I'd like to make a comment, if I could. Um, I happen to be an insurance agent, uh-huh. and I want to make sure people know that all agents are not the same. <laughs> all annuities are not the same. And if that man earned 15, 14%, he could, he, he, she should be in jail. But the average commission is 3 to 4%. So don't get the idea that all agents after selling annuities are making that much money and, and, and at that level. It just isn't true. I appreciate the comment there. And say there are annuities that are appropriate uh, for certain situations. So don't. Um, you know, and that's not a blanket statement, but there are a lot of annuities. Um, I know of a gentleman in California who sold an annuity to an 87-year-old lady, and uh, he got a two-year jail sentence. And it wasn't fair that we feel the whole story. I know the whole story. That was it. Was a that's all I heard. It was not a good. It was not a good thing for, for anybody. They, they really railroaded the guy. But he did. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yes, sir. Uh, would a whole life, like a mutual whole life insurance, be better for charity instead of a charity annuity? What What gives the most to somebody, uh, to the charity? What's the better benefit, financial benefit? Can you repeat the question for the recording? What is the best uh, asset to yeah, give? Best asset, either a whole life or a, a annuity, charitable annuity. Well, with the whole life, you know, you would just make the ch- charity the beneficiary. Correct. And uh, so long as you continue to pay the premiums, you know, that's a great uh, way to go. Now, with a gift annuity, you can give appreciated uh, assets, uh, real estate, stock, and of course, cash. What is the best? It all gets down to cash in the end. So cash is actually the easiest and the as the best. But from your perspective as a donor, uh, appreciated asset is the best. 
So he said, you're going to avoid capital gains tax. You're going to avoid uh, tax, uh, income tax on the payout. And you're going to get a charitable deduction to boot in the first year. Does that answer you? Good. Well, sorry? Let me make one more comment. Life insurance proceeds are received income tax free. Yes. Generally speaking, annuities can be taxable. So there's a way of looking at it two ways. At normal commercial annuities have what we call a tax curse because you've built up income over the years. That income is taxable. But if the charity is the beneficiary of that annuity, then the charity, yes, they'll get a 1099-R from the insurance company, but the charity is tax-exempt. So it's uh, the best way to go. Yeah. Yes, sir? One final question. Going back to the assemblies of the property. So when the... Somebody decides. I, I believe that the assembly must be decided, not the board of directors or the others, but the entire assembly members, the majority, should be the out of the board. So they make a decision that we want to, uh, when we, whenever we sell, the, the proceeds must go to some function. Now, at, at, one, at, at what point that the assembly lets you come in, and when you come in, does the deed gets transferred to? It, it can be. If uh, we've done that, um, some people, some assemblies are being concerned that there might be another group, uh, not an evangelical group, just another group that might come in and take over. And uh, so the best way, the only way to secure that for the assemblies is for them to give Believer's Stewardship Services the title deed. So title is vested in Believer's Stewardship Services, subject to a memorandum of understanding uh, which sets out the conditions of uh, the gift. But um, where the assembly is dissolving and... Um, you know, deciding to dissolve and what they're going to do with it, that's up to the leadership in the assembly to decide which way to go. But often that case is there's only three or four left. I remember a lady called me up from Colorado years ago and she told me about the assembly closing down and how could we help. And I said, well, what do the elders think? She says, I am the only person left. <laughs> so, you know, we work with her. You know, that, that, uh, so it all depends on the situation of the time. What I, what I was coming in is sort of waiting everybody to get over 85. Can they, I mean, the young assembly, can they do that now and then put something in, uh, like a conditional thing, these other things need to be done. Well, now, once the title of deed is given to BSS, the BSS won't be the one who makes the decision to sell it, right? If the assembly still would be... Well, if you do that, it will be subject to a memorandum of understanding that the point of sale or the timing of the sale will be conditioned on certain events, certain triggers. For example, the assembly runs out of money. I got one in Chicago right now. We estimate that they will be able to stay open for another seven years. But when that money is gone, because the assembly has dwindled, they're using money that was given to them through an estate. But when that money is gone, 
uh, there'll be no money to pay for the upkeep of the building. At that point in time, they, uh, we will have to have talks with whoever is left to say, okay, we're going to have to find another assembly to take over this building or another evangelical church to take over, or we may end up having to sell for the best. Yeah. That answer your question, sir? Yes. Good. Well, again, the, the memorandum of understanding will keep coming. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The title goes out. There may not be a 100% consensus among the uh, saints what to do. There may be 50% want to sell, 50% doesn't want to sell, or 60 want to sell. At some point, uh, it has to be well defined or written in the, in the document that, you know, when it's time to dispose. But if there is no, not majority of the consensus, you know, yeah. consensus where uh, most of them wanted not to settle, but one or two wanted to settle. Yeah. But, you know, it was a, a final majority way. Yeah. Well, that has to be negotiated. That's all I can say uh, there. Um, but it's important to know that if we were holding a title, we have nothing to do with operations. We don't interfere. We have nothing. The only thing that we would require is insurance so that we would be the lost payee uh, if the place burned down, for example, and it had to be rebuilt. Uh, we would be brought into the picture because we, we would be the last payee. Um, we, didn't, we wouldn't want that to be left just undecided. But it would be all subject to that memorandum of understanding. Yeah. Any more? Well, I do thank you for your time, Dave. Um, anything else uh, from your perspective? You have supplied something to... Yeah,